morning. A drug counselor to teenagers once told me, teenagers think they are immortal, invincible, infallible, and infertile. <laughs> and I suspect if you think way back into your earlier years, you might recall one or two times that you did something really stupid. This was one of the things I did that was really stupid. Some years back, when I was a teenager, I was a canoeing instructor and lifeguard at a Boy Scout camp just outside of Minnesota, about 16 miles south. And I loved being outdoors. I still do. Loved being in the water. And we did what we called mile swims, where we'd have certain protocols. We were trained. We were trained very well on all kinds of life-saving and boating techniques. And I taught others, dozens of kids, to do the same. And we'd do these mile swims. And we'd have a boat there and one scout rowing who's trained to do so, another scout with a pole, a big long pole, who would put it on, on somebody's shoulder if they had gotten in trouble and pull them into safety. But then again, that's for the little ignorant little tenderfoot scouts. But for us, you know, 16 and 17 year olds who were immortal, invincible, and infallible, we didn't need any of that stuff. So a number of times at night, we'd run out to the lake. And at Lake Superior, uh, you know, the, the, up here in the north, it's just beautiful country. I love breathing the air. Um, the beautiful starlit skies. And sometimes at night, the water in our little lake was warmer than the air temperature. So it was great to go swimming. So we'd take off, dive in the water, swim across the lake and back at night. Pitch, well, not pitch dark, a, a starlit sky. And it was just a great thing that we love to do every once in a while. One night after several weeks of scout camp, and doing this once or twice a week, we went down at midnight without any of our leaders, of course, knowing anything about this. And we didn't need a boat, you know, because we were teenagers. So we dove in the water. Eight of us swam across the lake and swam back. And then, it was, then there was a voice that just rung out that sounded a lot like mine that said, let's do it again. Well, fortunately, there were four guys who had enough sense to not listen to that voice. I, of course, was not one of them. And they got out, but four of us went across the lake again for a second mile at midnight. This is about 1 o'clock in the morning now. And three of us were lifeguards, and so we were in the water every day. We were in relatively good shape, but not really good enough to do that, but good enough. One of us was in the forestry department, and they didn't swim that much. So we went across the lake, and we're dead dog tired, and we're coming back again. And we're all just wiped. And all of a sudden, my friend who was in the forestry area said, I can't make it anymore. I can't make it anymore. And he just floats in the water. And I, I had been trained, and I trained dozens of scouts in what's called the tired swimmer rescue. At least I knew the right thing to do. I had never done it for real. In fact, that's the first and only time that I ever had to do that. I won't go through the details, but basically what happens is the person you're trying to rescue cannot be in a state of panic. They must be willing to submit to you and let you do all the work. You do all the swimming, they do nothing. They just hang on. So I told him what to do, he did it, and I got him to the dock. Just wiped out. The next day he came to me and says, you know, I couldn't swim one more stroke. He was in far worse state than I thought he was in. He could have died that night. 
And he was my friend. If he had tried to fight me, I don't know that I could have saved him. And he was my friend. I couldn't leave him there. We might both have gone that night. So often, the rescuer dies with the person they're trying to rescue in life-saving situations around water. Well, that, to me, is a good illustration of salvation. If we try to save ourselves, make any effort to do so, Jesus cannot save us. The only way that he can save you and I is if we, is if we put our total faith and trust in him to do for us what we can't do ourselves. My friend had to trust me to get him to shore because he couldn't do one more stroke, he told me. He needed someone who could do what he could not do, and we need a savior to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But you know, salvation isn't just, isn't just fire insurance. It's far more than that. God saves us to bring us in relationship to him to begin to enable us to do the works which he has purposed in advance for us to do and to prepare us for heaven. So when I think of what theologians talk about the whole salvation process, three terms come to my mind. It ought to impact us and make us more grateful, more motivated to serve him, and more hopeful in what we're going to get in our ultimate reward. Those are the three states of salvation. I love the outline of that theologians give. You know, that's, first of all, there's justification, and then there's sanctification, and then there's glorification. Someone likens Christianity and service to Christ as someone applying to school. We are accepted as a student, then we learn as a student, and then we graduate with a degree having completed that course. We have a position in Jesus Christ. In him, we are, God chose us in him before the creation of the world, it says in Ephesians 1.11. Can you think of that? What did you do in eternity to earn your salvation when God elected you? Nothing is what you did. God chose us in him before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And then there's the process where he begins to make us into his image. And then there's the promise when that promise is fulfilled, when we see him face to face. So the first thing is I'm saved. That's justification. I had the privilege of sitting under the feet of a great uh, systematic theologian, Dr. Charles Ryrie. Perhaps you've seen his, uh, his books, uh, the Study Bible, Charles Ryrie Study Bible. He's written a number of commentaries. He's not with the Lord. But he had the ability to succinctly and write truth down in very clear and unambiguous and very understandable terms. And he writes regarding justification. To justify is to declare righteous. It is a judicial term indicating that a verdict of acquittal has been announced, excluding all possibility of condemnation. I put down just several verses here. Indeed, we could spend a lot of time in this area here. And when we were with Campus Crusade, my wife and I at, uh, at Northern Michigan, we were all encouraged to memorize Romans chapter 8. And perhaps you have done that too. And perhaps many of you remember chapter 8, verse 1. What a verse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will never be condemned for anything you've thought, said, or done, past, present, or future. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been chosen in him before the creation of the world. That's assurance, isn't it? isn't it? That's assurance of salvation. Of course, we all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, the world of men, 
that he gave his one and only son, that if we believe in him, we should not perish but have eternal life. The most famous verse in the Bible. I'm sure you all know it. John 1.12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John, uh, rather, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. There's no distinction amongst men. We like to make distinctions, but God doesn't. Josh McDowell, if you might recall him, wrote about trying to reach God on our own effort is like standing on the Jersey Shore, jumping off a pier and hoping to land in France. Now, you and I may have some different athletic abilities, and perhaps you're a world-class long jumper, and you jump off that, that ramp, and you go 28 feet out, in, out into the ocean. I pour at it. I'm very bad at it. I'm limping. I'm old. I go about one foot. Where do we all end? We all end in the water. We all end up drowning. You may have gotten a lot farther than me. You may be a lot better than me as we compare ourselves to ourselves. But God does not compare ourselves to ourselves. He compares us to his son. For he has said a day with, uh, that he appointed his justice and he will judge all men according to him who was raised from the dead in Acts 17. He's the one man, and he proved it to all men by raising him from the dead. He is the bar of measurement in God's bureau of standard, standards of measurements regarding righteousness. It's Christ and Christ alone. When Jesus fed thousands of people in John 6, and they want a free dinner, and they come up to Jesus, and, De and they want Jesus to, to tell them uh, you know, more teaching than feed him again. He had a great buffet, apparently. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Father will give you. And they ask him, what is this work that God requires us to do? In verse 28. And then verse 29, Jesus says these words. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the only thing you and I can do, is to believe in the one he has sent. My friend had to believe that I could get him to the dock. Fortunately, thank God, I was able to do that. He had to trust me to do what he couldn't do for himself. But it doesn't end there. It just begins there. Our spiritual our pilgrimage starts with salvation, justification, and it goes on to many more things. But that impact that it ought to have in our lives is gratitude. We ought to be a grateful people. If you look at Galatians 5, it talks about the attributes of the sinful uh, nations, the sinful nature of man, and those of the fruit of the Spirit. The sinful nature is ungrateful. The world is an ungrateful group of people. A Christian is a grateful person who's filled with joy that the Holy Spirit gives them. We ought to be grateful for what God has done, with, done for us. Jerry Bridges in his book, Discipline of Grace, makes the argument that our gratitude for what God has done for us should be the motivational factor for everything we do in life. It ought to motivate us to do good because we are saved to do, to do good. So that's the second point. I am being saved. It's an ongoing, progressive experience. To sanctify means, as Dr. Charles Ryrie says, it means to set apart, to be made holy. All the exhortations of the New Testament concerning spiritual growth are pertinent to this progressive and experiential facet of sanctification. We could spend a lot of time on each of these points. I'm going to just highlight a few of them. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it talks about, and we with unveiled faces, talking about Moses coming out of the tabernacle in Exodus, and he had this 
Shekinah glory of God that just emanated from him because he had been in the presence of God. And Paul takes up that story and says, and we all with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Spirit. I live and my family farm is near the Stonington Peninsula. And at the end of that peninsula, every year we see migrations of thousands and thousands of monarch butterflies. When I think of change, I think of monarch butterflies. You probably are familiar with this. I'm sure Brian explained it to you. But the Greek word for change is metamorphosis. Uh, the transliteration of that word, of course, is what we say for a, a, the process of a, a butterfly going from a larva to a pupa to a butterfly is, of course, metamorphosis. It's a Greek word. It means to change from within going to the outside. Think of a, of a monarch. It spends its time as a little, not very pretty worm, if, you're, if you've ever seen one, if you know what they look like. They're crawling through the dirt of the earth. They go through the pupa stage, they're in the cocoon, they are metamorphosized, they are changed from within, and they come out a beautiful monarch butterfly. So it starts its life in the dirt, it, it ends its life in the flowers. That's what God does with us. The word transfigured that Jesus uses, that's used to describe uh, what Jesus experiences with, on the mountaintop with James and, and, and Peter and John is the word metamorphosis. That's what we trans, translate into transfigured, you're changed. God is in the process of changing us. Philippians uh, 2, 12 and 13 is another verse I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good purpose. Salvation is all Jesus. Sanctification requires a cooperative effort from us. We can only be saved if we trust him to save us. But in the sanctification process, he calls us to obedience. You know, we think about love. My wife loves to watch you know, the Hallmark Channel. These are, I'm sure you've never seen one. You know, they have one or two Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel. They're still playing them. But they're, they're kind of pleasant stories. And I'm going to watch the TV show with Navy SEALs in it. Every once in a while, I can see it. Okay, I'll watch your movie. But, you know, it's a romantic thing. It's easy to love. Uh, you know, we know how it's going to end, and it has a good ending. Uh, the love in the Bible that God defines, God defines love like this. He's, Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse, if anyone has my commandments and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him. And then he says, and I will show myself to him. If you want to see God working in your life, you've got to do what God tells you to do. There's no other way. We live by faith, not by sight. By faith, meaning we trust in what we cannot see. That's both physical and metaphorical. I can't see everything that God is doing, nor in the metaphorical sense can I understand everything that God is doing. I'm reminded once years ago of a preacher who said, we're not called to be understanders. We are called to be believers. I'm not an understander. I do not understand everything that goes on. I don't understand the tragedies of the Germans. I don't understand the tragedy of Dove. I don't understand the tragedies that my own family has experienced in the last two years. We had a very difficult uh, two years. Several have died, including a young person. I don't understand them. But I do believe in the God of creation. And I do trust that God of creation. Will he not do what is good? 
to sanctify means to set apart. We have been given the joy of working with God. We can participate in his kingdom. What kind of impact ought that to have in you and I? Well, beyond gratitude, again, it's motivation. Motivation to do what God calls us to do, to seek him and to seek the holiness that he calls us to live, to set apart, to be obedient to him. I love the worship of music, don't, don't you? You sing these songs, you, you think about God. God. Music is from God. It was invented by God, not by man. I may do a sermon on that in a few weeks. God sets us apart. We worship him to glorify him. He calls us to love him. That's an active verb. Love is an active verb. We express our love for God by our obedience to God. We express our love for God by loving our families and our neighbors and doing the things he calls us to do. Finally, there's I will be saved. That's glorification. That's when we have arrived. The position is in Christ. The process is we're being transformed, being transfigured, being changed. And finally, is the promise we've arrived. The student applies. He's accepted. He studies his course. And then finally, the day comes when he graduates. Our graduation is glorification. When I thought about this, first let me give you a quote here. When I thought about this, I thought, what is an illustration of glorification? And I'm going to give you three illustrations. First of all, glorification is the completion, the consummation, the perfection, and the full realization of salvation. You know, you think about glorification cognitively, and you think, well, that's just something we're not going to see in there, sir. We're going to see it when we pass away or we get raptured, right? Then we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to be like him only when we see him. 1 John uh, 3.2 says, we don't know what we shall be. All we know is that we shall be here. When we see him, we shall be made like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, again, is a promise here. We are, uh, we are being transformed with ever-increasing glory into his image, into his likeness. One day that likeness, that image, and that transformation will be complete. Philippians 1.6, again, I'll quote it. Uh, for being confident of this, that he will begin a good work and you will carry it on to the day of completion. There is a day when we will be completed. I've had some unusual experiences. I think maybe every pastor does, but something I hadn't expected, something I would have never have anticipated, is on a number of occasions you get called to watch people die. And that's all sometimes a very very painful and difficult thing to do. My wife, who's a very empathetic person, has come with me on, on some of these, uh, these uh, meetings as I'm praying for people as they're nearing death, and she could hardly stay in the room. It was so hard to watch these people. But the thing that surprised me, I want to tell you three stories. There are many, but I'll just tell you three. First of all, I want to tell you the story of Matt. We had, like you, a vacation Bible school. And like you, you did a great job, by the way. You should applaud all the workers and thank all of you who did that work. Pam and I are spiritual descendants of, v of VBS. She became a Christian at one. I heard the gospel that would later lead me to Christ years later as a student because I memorized these verses. And I never forgot them, thought about them to the day I trusted Christ. And we had a vacation Bible school. And like you, it was an all-out effort. And I got an excited... Uh, visitation by one of the women who was running our program, one of the aspects of the program, she came to me. We have a reporter here. The local newspaper is called the Courier News in Central Jersey. And a reporter from the Courier News had come to do a story in our vacation Bible school. So we immediately got a few people out. We started praying for him. And we gave him the deluxe tour. We showed him all the rooms. We did a lot of work just like you did, decorating every room. We had different 
<laughs> seasonal kind of things, different Bible stories going on. And he went back, and we're all wondering, what kind of story is he going to write about us? Honestly, they're not a paper that was very friendly to uh, Christians. And he wrote this glowing story of our vacation Bible school. Great, great. We love that he did that. Two months later, he comes and visits us with his wife and his two little boys in tow. In the interim, he was a musician as well as a reporter. And he had met this Christian musician, and he had led him to the Lord. So the Christian musician said, you should go to a Bible-believing church. So Matt says, boy, that church was great with their vacation Bible school, and I'd like my boys to be a part of that church. So he brought his family there. And Matt and his wife, Stephanie, took off like a rocket and never came down. I won't give you the details. They're not very pretty. They came from the darkest side of things of anybody I've ever experienced in my life. I will not regale you with their life story. But they came to Christ out of the darkest of places. And they just jumped into service in the church. Within two years, Matt got a very rare kind of emphysema where his lungs would calcify little by little. He would slowly suffocate. And I'm thinking, how is Matt going to deal with this terrible tragedy? Inexplicable and not understandable. As I was visiting him, I visited him up in the ICU in Somerville, New Jersey, at Robert Woods Johnson Hospital. And I'm going into the ICU, and I'm thinking, he's got this wife that needs him. He's got these two little boys. They're five and seven. You know, is he, is he bitter and angry? You know, how am I going to answer his questions? I'm projecting, you know, what is he thinking? How, what is he feeling? How am I going to deal, help him deal with this? And I, I'll never forget, go, forget going into the ICU, and their man is lying down. And I'm looking down at him, and he's smiling up at him, up, up at me. And as we're talking, I said, Matt, where is Jesus to you right now? And I can still see him smiling to me. He said, he's all around me. He's all around me. I learned over and over again, when you've got nothing left but Jesus Christ, you have all there is that you'll need. He fills you with a joy and peace that is beyond human understanding, that transcends any kind of way that we might try to negotiate or understand or philosophize about what's happening. He just fills you with his presence. And Matt died a few hours later, again with a smile on his face. I thought, when I go, you know, I, want, I want to go like Matt. Another person, a young girl in our church named Haley. At the age of 12, she was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. Beautiful young little girl, 12 years old. And I would visit her in the local hospital. There's a hospital on the East Coast. It's a very nationally known, prestigious children's hospital called the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, CHOP. And she was put with three other 12-year-old uh, girls, all the same age, all diagnosed with exactly the same thing. All of them were non-believers, unfortunately. Within two years, all those three girls would be gone. But Haley lived. If you look statistically, and you can demonstrate this through empirical analysis, I have some reports, and you may be read them themselves, that Christians tend to live longer, have longer remissions, have shorter stays in the hospital, have greater percentages of recovery from heart attacks. I think that's an answer to prayer. Prayer works. Prayer does change things. So we prayed for Haley. I know she wanted to, to have a, a family. She wanted to have a children. I remember one of the women in our church crying to me one time. 
She was sitting in front of Haley, and Haley says to her, oh, your hair is so beautiful. And she turned around, and there is this little teenage girl who's just a waff of a person who's lost you know, dozens of pounds through chemotherapy and has no hair. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? When Haley was nearing her passing, she lived six years. The family called me to go over to her house. And I had been talking with Haley and the parents and the family for obviously for all these years. And her mother would tell me, my daughter, my daughter's fine. The rest of us are basket cases. But my daughter is fine. If you would talk to Haley and you wouldn't know who she was, if you were just talking to her on the phone, you would think you were talking to some spiritually mature woman, not an 18-year-old girl who's 80 pounds and has no hair. But again, like Matt, she had lost all hope of any earthly chance of living of a, of a, of a family. And all she was thinking about was Jesus. She was so close to God. Just a smile was on her face. As I'm holding her hand in her home, she died at her home, she's smiling at me as I'm praying for her. When I would go through my own near terminal end on three occasions, I thought of Haley. You know, I thought of Matt. You know, they were my examples in an earthly sense. If they can do it, I can do it. So I grit my teeth. I said, thank you, Jesus, and what do you want me to learn from all this? It enabled me, when I was sitting in the hospital, to get up and take my little tripod with my, you know, blood stuff coming in. And I thought, you know, I could be dead tomorrow, and this guy next to me, he could be dead as well. So I wheeled myself over to his room, and I said, you know, tomorrow you and I could be facing eternity, because we were both facing heart surgery the next day. He was very open to the gospel. I had two roommates, both younger than me and both worse off than me very open to hear my story. My last story is my friend Isaac. I would visit people who would visit the church, obviously, so I'd call them up. And I arranged to come over one night to talk to their family, meet their family, and answer, answer their questions about the church. And I knocked on the door, and this little girl you know, came and opened the door for me. Until that moment, I didn't know that they were Indians, but they were Indians, a little, beautiful little young girl. And I want to say this very carefully. I don't want to be misunderstood. Uh, sometimes people get, in the charismatic world, they expect faith is not faith, it's experiential, it's some kind of visions or dreams. You never go to anything that's beyond the scripture. That doesn't mean God can't speak to you or can't, God can't answer uh, a prayer, I'll give you maybe some kind of vision that's particularly pertaining to you. It doesn't violate the scriptures. So I'm not saying that. But on a handful of occasions, I have had supernatural experiences. And that was one of them. I walked into that house. And as soon as I walked into that house, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. Something was different about this family. And I wanted to find out their story. And boy, I found it out. Isaac was rocketing up the corporate ladder. I think it was Travelers Insurance. It's now Citicorp. He's 38 years old. He's a vice president making lots of money. He's in charge of the whole IT program. And he wakes up one night with a seizure. He's got an inoperable uh, terminal brain tumor. And they gave him six months to live. And he was a Christian, but he, by his own reckoning, would be, he would describe himself as a nominal believer. And he thought, God, just, 
I just want to live long enough to watch my, my little baby girl who was about three months old at that time. I want to see her graduate from high school. He had two oldest boys and this little baby girl, Christiana, our Pravda, in, in Indian. And every six months, they would give him an operation. I forgot how many operations he went through. Or they'd find a new procedure and extend his life another six months, and then another six months. When I met him, he had been under the surgeon's care for six months, and I would know him for another 12 years. Isaac was the best man in my church, no question about it. To be around him, he was the closest man to, that walked with God of anybody I've ever met in my life. This is the last picture of him. There's Isaac with his wife, with his daughter, in her graduation gown. He made it to her graduation. And a week later, he went to meet with his Jesus, with his God. Best man I've ever known. When I think of these benedictions that we read throughout the scriptures, one of them that sticks in my mind is Romans 15, 13. It says, let the God of hope Actually, he starts out with, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Now, that kind of hope is not the kind of hope your five-year-old has that he's going to get an aircraft carrier for birthday. Or the hope that you have that when you tell your teenager five times that, you know, empty the garbage, they're going to do it. This is a hope that is obtainable, a hope that is accessible. The Greek grammarians call this construction in Romans 15, 13, the operative of obtainable wish. It's a rare construction, but it always means you can do this. I want you to have this. This is accessible. This is yours. If you fulfill the contingency, the condition, if you trust in him. If you and I trust in God, like Haley or Matt or Isaac, you're going to get filled with that joy. And the more you trust and obey, the more joy you're going to get filled with and the more peace that you're going to have. So when I think of the whole salvation process, and these people had one foot on earth, but they had one foot in heaven. They, each one of these people were a glimpse to me of what glorification is going to look like for all of us one day. So as you think about salvation, how should it impact us? We should be grateful above all else. We should be a joyful, thankful people. We should have motivation to serve based on what God did for us. Like, like Jerry Bridges says in The Discipline of Grace, that should be our operating uh, objective. We, 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 we serve because he loved us and because he saved us. And finally, we should be filled with that hope. If you pray to be filled with hope, that hope and you trust in Jesus more and more, you're going to see more and more of that joy and peace in your life. So, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.